Awesome. Well, good morning, River City. My name's Brand. I'm one of the pastors here. Grateful to get to join you for worship together this morning and, and just glad to get to gather together to celebrate, uh, to celebrate Easter together and the risen Lord. Uh, if you are new or visiting, especially want to say welcome to you, glad that you would be with us. If there's anything that we can do to serve you or help you get connected to the community here at River City, uh, we'd love to be able to do that. So come find me or somebody else who looks like they know which direction the doors are around here. And, and uh, we'd love to just get to know you, help you get plugged into the community here at River City. So uh, we've been working our way here on Sundays at River City through the book of 1 Corinthians. It's a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church in the city of Corinth written about 2,000 years ago. And, and uh, last week, Aaron actually preached on chapter 5, and so naturally we're going to be in chapter 15 this morning. Um, and uh, don't worry, we'll come back to the chapters we skipped. Uh, but chapter 15, we're actually going to be there the next couple of weeks because in it, Paul basically lays out uh, for us uh, not only an understanding of the resurrection, but talks robustly about the implications of the resurrection in our lives. And so we're going to spend a couple weeks digging into that this morning. But, but especially what you find in chapter 15 and what we'll see as we'll read this morning is, the, is really the central claim on which all of Christianity depends. It's the, it's the bottom bottom piece of the Jenga tower, you take that brick out, everything's fallen, no matter what you do or how good at balancing you are. It just doesn't work. You see, the claim is simply this, that Jesus rose from the dead. And see, Christianity is not built on good teaching or moral principles or philosophical ideas. Uh, Christianity is built on the claim that Jesus lived, that he actually died, that he was buried, and that three days later, he came back alive from death. He wasn't resuscitated. He wasn't reincarnated. He was, in fact, resurrected. It's, it's, an, it's, a, it's a fact that's so important. It's a, it's a piece that is so important to our faith that, that later on in chapters, uh, chapter 15, verses 17 through 19, Apostle Paul writes and he basically says that, that if Jesus doesn't rise, then our faith is totally worthless. It's totally pointless. That, that we're just pitiful fools who are wasting our time. That there is no reason for us to have any kind of a hope beyond death. And, and that sin and death win and there's no good news beyond that. And the rest of the New Testament writers, they affirm this. And universally, they, they root the good news of the gospel and the Christian faith as a whole in the context of the resurrection of Jesus. And so the question that we have to answer is, did Jesus actually rise from the dead or not? Maybe you're here this morning and, and you're not sure how you might answer that question. Or maybe you have some questions or some doubts. And I just want to say to you this morning, if that's where you're at, that's okay. You see, anything worth believing is worth questioning. It's worth asking good and real questions about and not just blindly following. But I, but I want to encourage you this morning. Don't allow your doubts or your questions just to merely go unanswered. Don't allow them to merely turn into just kind of an unsettled cynicism. Instead, I want to encourage you to wrestle with your doubts and ask questions about the things that matter Maybe you're here this morning, though, and, and you don't really wrestle with doubt about the resurrection. It's just something you've, you've always believed and you've always held to, and it hasn't been something that's plagued you with doubts or questions. And, and I want to encourage you this morning as well as we study not to just settle for pat answers when it comes to the resurrection. You see, blind faith, that's not, one, it's not what Jesus is asking for, but two, it's not something that actually honors him. And it's not something that helps you or helps you actually proclaim him rightly to other people. Who really do have questions. And so whether you're here this morning and you're a skeptic 
or whether you're a believer or whether you're somewhere in between, I want to encourage you to, to either maybe push back against your doubt or to press further into your faith this morning. You see, determine good reasons for believing or not believing in the resurrection of Jesus because the reality, as Paul claims it this morning, is that his rising from death, the, the way you answer that question, if he did or not, it changes absolutely everything. It is the thing on which everything else hinges. And so, as we study 1 Corinthians 15 and the message of Jesus' resurrection this morning, what, what I want you to see is not only that, that belief in the resurrected, physical resurrection of Jesus is not just a, a plausible thing, but it is in fact the best explanation of the evidence we have both inside and outside of the Bible. But more than that, that it's not just good news that might be true. It's good news that actually is intended to change and transform our lives every day. And so with that in mind, let's pray and we'll dive into our time in God's word this morning. God, thanks for gathering us together to study your word and to hear from you. And God, we just want to humbly come before you, um, just recognizing that, that we need you to be able to understand your word rightly. And I need you to be able to empower me to preach and to teach, not just what's true, but with power. And God, there's no amount of logic or reason that brings people to faith or that affirms us in our faith, but instead it's you that helps us to see what is true. And so, God, we just want to come humbly this morning asking that you would help us, that you would meet those who are here in their doubts, that you would meet others who have just blindly believed, but that you would might encourage and affirm their faith as well this morning, God, and that you might, as we, as we think on you and on your resurrection, that it might cause us to be empowered to live new lives each and every day. And so, God, for every part of our gathering this morning, we need you. And so we just uh, wait expectantly to see how you will meet us this morning. God, for our good and for your glory, we ask all of that. Amen. Amen. Well, like I said, this morning we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Verse 1 begins this way. Apostle Paul writes, he says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word that I preached to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. And after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, that's the brother of Jesus, and then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared also to me, as to one abnormally born, for I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, but I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I. But the grace of God, that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach. And this is what you believed. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? For if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and, and so is your faith. 
More than that, then we are found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. And if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. You see, in order to answer our question this morning about whether or not Jesus raised from the dead, we really need to begin by first asking about the possibility of the resurrection in the first place. You see, in verse 12, we read that many of the believers in the Corinthian church, many of the people that are a part of this church, they were doubting that Jesus or anyone else, for that matter, could rise from death, that, that they didn't even think that resurrection was possible. And that wasn't because they hadn't heard the evidence. It wasn't because they hadn't heard the testimony of the eyewitnesses and and seen all the facts surrounding it. Verse 1, Paul says that he's reminding them of everything he's already told them and that the others have already told them as well. You see, instead what's going on here is that in spite of all that they have seen, in spite of all that they have heard, their worldview simply does not allow for the possibility of Jesus to be resurrected as one of the options that they could believe. You see, the entire pagan culture of the Greco-Roman world, it knew nothing of resurrection. It's not something that you could find in, the, in any of the religious systems of their day. And so doubts about the testimony of Paul and, and their conclusions that Christ might not have been raised from the dead is simply an outworking of their cultural mindset and the worldview of their day. You see, the idea of a physical resurrection, it just wasn't on the table, wasn't an option to be considered. You see, in the worldview of the Western culture that we live in is not altogether different than theirs. You see, the world that we live in often begins with the assumption not only that resurrection is impossible, but that, that anything supernatural is impossible. And going often so far as to definitively say that there's nothing other than what we can see or feel or touch that has any reality to it. Conversely, though, as Christians, we we begin from the belief that there indeed is a supernatural reality beyond what we can see and feel and touch. And furthermore, Christianity begins with the assumption that God created life, and so it is well within his ability and means to resurrect life. And so the question is this, then, when we examine the facts, when we examine the evidence surrounding the resurrection, both inside the Bible and outside of it, Will we allow our worldview to shape the options we have to interpret the facts, or will we simply be allow our worldview to interpret the facts for us? You see, when it comes to asking about the possibility of the resurrection, most people tend to think that the burden of proof is just purely on the Bible. But, and that is true. There is a level of proof of burden that is there, but there's also a burden of proof for those who reject the resurrection as well. One scholar, he writes it this way, he says, There is no question, even amongst the most secular of scholars, that around 2,000 years ago, an entirely new religious movement and community was formed almost overnight. And immediately, hundreds of people started claiming that Jesus rose from the grave, even when it meant that they would die for claiming that. And a fast-growing movement of people that now makes up what some estimate is nearly a third of the world survives as a result And so how do you explain that? You see, if you don't believe in the resurrection, there is a burden of proof to provide some other kind of plausible answer for the reality of the world that we live in and what we see. You see, the ultimate test of any worldview 
It's always the reality in which we live and which view offers the best interpretation of the facts. And so Paul's argument in our passage this morning is that there is indeed compelling evidence for the reality of Jesus' resurrection. And so what I want to do is examine that evidence with you this morning and, and help us to think clearly about the, the plausibility of the resurrection of Jesus. And I use that word plausible because the reality is that there's no way that I can prove to you 100% that Jesus rose from the dead, right? It's just, that's not the fact, that's not what we're accomplishing. But what I do want to do this morning it's help you to see that there is not just blind faith required to believe in the resurrection of Jesus, that there is real evidence that's there that helps us to believe what is true. And so, with that in mind, let's take a look. And as we begin to take a look at that evidence, there's really three categories the evidence for Jesus' resurrection falls into. And the first is, is the biblical evidence. Verses 3 and 4, we read that, that Paul writes that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. See, Jesus himself repeatedly and clearly articulated that not only that he would die and be buried, but that he would indeed rise again on the third day. The Gospel of Matthew records for us no less than five specific instances when Jesus outlines those very things. But it's not merely what Jesus just has to say about that. It's the testimony of the rest of Scripture in the Old Testament as well. We read in, that's affirmed that this is the plan, that this is the way, that the things would happen to the Messiah. You look in places like Psalm 16 and Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 and the story of Jonah and the story of Hosea, and you see all of these things being foreshadowed. But it's not just biblical evidence that we have for the resurrection. The second type of evidence we see in the passage is eyewitness evidence. Verses 5 and 8, Paul writes that after Jesus rose, that, that he appeared to Cephas, that's the apostle Peter, one of the 12 disciples, and then to the rest of the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, many of whom are still living. And then he appeared to James, that's Jesus' brother, and to all the apostles. And last of all, he says he appeared even to Paul, even to me. You see, the, what Paul's trying to get across is that, that seeing the resurrected Jesus, it wasn't like a Bigfoot sighting, right? It wasn't like some dude who was kind of sitting in a tree stand who was kind of like not really paying attention and might have seen something tall and hairy walk past, right? No, the, the people that saw Jesus were people that knew him, that people who understood who he was, who were not confused by a passing mirage, you see, more than that, we see that he appeared to over 500 people. That flies in the face of the, the claim that the resurrection was just kind of a, a hallucination or some delusion. Just like, as a heads up, that's not how hallucinations work, right? People don't hallucinate the same thing at the same time. That's not how any of it works, right? Moreover, Paul says that most of those people, they're still alive. What he's saying to the Corinthians, he's saying, you could go ask them if you wanted. They're all around, you can go see what they have to say. They'll tell you what they saw. They're there for you. They're evidence. But it's not just the amount of people that appear that sticks out, that, that saw Jesus resurrected, that sticks out. It's, it's who saw him. Verse 8 begins by highlighting how Jesus appeared to Paul, who was, in fact, Jesus' most ardent enemy at the time. We read in Acts about how, about how Paul, whose name at the time was Saul, who was, he was so opposed to Jesus, he was literally traveling around the countryside, hunting down Christians so he could arrest and murder them. Then on his way on one of these trips in the road to Damascus, he, he encounters the risen, resurrected, ruling, reigning King Jesus. 
And Paul goes from being a murderer of Christians to a missionary Christian who, who himself ends up being killed for proclaiming the truth about Jesus. See, he's the reality is that your most ardent opponent does not become your most ardent proponent after he's already defeated you unless the resurrection is real. If that wasn't enough, the gospel accounts we read after the resurrection, they articulate to us that Jesus first appeared to women. And we look at that now and it doesn't, we don't bat an eye at that. We don't give it a second thought. But in the ancient world, that would have been incredible. You see, in the ancient world, the testimony of women, it didn't have value in court. And so the only reason you would include the testimony of women who saw the resurrected Jesus in the primary accounts of the story is if that's what actually happened. You don't include those kind of made-up details in the ancient world. It's not what happens. And, and most of all, you see at the end, you see that Jesus appeared, and Paul lists James, his actual brother. I don't know about you, I've never thought that my brother was God. I thought he was the devil, maybe a couple of times, right? But I've never, ever thought, you know what, I think he might be God. And yet we see that James teaches that over and abundantly, clearly. He even writes a book of the Bible. He gives his life to the proclamation that Jesus is God and the proclamation of that gospel. He's Jesus' brother. You see, the who Jesus reveals himself to is resurrected. It, it matters. It's, there's incredible, not just biblical evidence, but eyewitness evidence as well. And, and the last kind of evidence we see is, is the circumstantial evidence or corroborating evidence. I don't know about you, I love courtroom shows for some reason. If I wasn't a pastor, I'd want to be a lawyer. I'm probably not smart enough, but hey, right? everybody's got to have a dream, right? And one thing I know is that no good lawyer bases their case on just circumstantial evidence. But every good lawyer uses circumstantial evidence to affirm and to bolster the, the reality of the claims that they have. You see, in the first piece of corroborating or circumstantial evidence we have is that to confirm the resurrection is that there just absolutely is no motive for the disciples to lie about Jesus' resurrection. It makes no sense why they would do that. There was literally no benefit for them claiming that Jesus rose from the dead and holding to that claim. It didn't get them fame. It didn't give them power. It didn't give them prestige. It didn't give them money. None of that. We read just a few weeks ago, we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul, he describes the life of an apostle. He says it this way. He sums it up. To this hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We're homeless. He goes on to say, we become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this very moment. Nobody's signing up for that. Nobody's excited about that. And if the way out of that is simply just denying a lie, then everyone would take that road. Furthermore, we see that 11 of the 12 apostles, including the guy that replaced Judas, died martyrs' deaths. And the 12th, John, he got exiled to the desert island, the deserted island of Patmos after they tried to boil him alive and he didn't die. None of them, none of them recanted their faith. How many of you, if you were being threatened with crucifixion or being boiled alive, would take that opportunity to recant of a lie? Sign me up, because that's what I would do if I was lying, right? But none of them do. They all went to their death saying that, that there was something beyond death. There was a power they had seen that could overcome even death. And so they were not afraid. 
And see, that brings us to the second piece of, of corroborating evidence. And it's simply the transformed character of the disciples. Before the resurrection, these dudes were cowards. They, they literally were the opposite of brave. Before the resurrection, Cephas, who's mentioned here in verse 5, that's the apostle Peter, he denies Jesus repeatedly. He's not even willing to admit to a servant girl that he even knows Jesus. And yet what we see is that after the resurrection, there is absolutely nothing that can keep him from proclaiming the message of Christ. In Acts 3, we read that the religious leaders of the day, they arrested him, they beat him, they threatened him, and he just says, I'm, I'm sorry, guys, I'm just going to keep talking about Jesus, right? We see church history records for us that Peter was crucified for his faith. How do you explain the transformation of these men apart from seeing the risen, ruling, reigning King Jesus? See, if the resurrection was merely a lie or a myth, you wouldn't have seen these guys suddenly get more bold and more courageous because where before they were suddenly, which just suddenly willing to admit to go to death for something they weren't even willing to admit to be associated with. And so you see the number of these ways. Additionally, you, you see that the fact that the day of worship changed for Orthodox Jews, for a millennium, worship happened on a Saturday. But after Jesus' resurrection, Orthodox Jews, many of whom made up the early church, began to worship Jesus and worship him on a Sunday because that was the day of his resurrection. And they had to do it. They had to meet early in the morning because in the ancient world, Sunday is kind of like our Monday, right? Imagine if I tried to start a new religion and then said, hey, everybody, uh, only time we're meeting, 5 a.m. Mondays, Right? That's not going well with anyone, right? I'm not even excited about meeting at 5 a.m. on Sundays, and I'm officially a pastor, right? Nobody wants that. And more than that, no way that's going to explode into growth, and yet that's what you see happening in the early church. The early church grows incredibly rapidly. How do you explain that? Unless Jesus actually rose. Furthermore, there is no tomb that people go to to honor Jesus. You can go to the tombs of the leaders of every other world religion, and what you'll find are shrines and memorials for Abraham and Buddha and Muhammad and all the rest. There are more than two billion people who claim to worship Jesus, and there is no tomb. Why? Because there is nothing there. There is nothing there to go see. It wasn't, his body was not stolen. There was a giant rock and a governmental seal and armed guards. No, there is no shrine or memorial or tomb because Jesus isn't there. He indeed has been risen. And everyone who saw it lived as though he was not dead. As though he indeed was alive. And so Paul reminds these Corinthians and he reminds us about the evidence for the thing that is at the very foundation of our faith, the, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. But Paul isn't just trying to say that the resurrection happened. He's not just trying to claim that it was a fact. He's, he's trying to help them see that that reality changes everything about their lives. You see, in answering the question about Jesus' resurrection isn't just important for Christians, it's important for everyone. You see, because Jesus did not merely claim to be the king of the Jews, he claimed that he was indeed the God of the universe. That he was not just a ruler, but the creator and maker of everything and everyone, everywhere. 
And so if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we can just go ahead and pack it in. I have already wasted plenty of your time this morning. Paul writes in verse 14, if Christ hasn't been raised, then our preaching is useless. So is your faith. None of it matters a lick. Oh, but if he actually did, if Jesus actually did rise from the dead, as Paul says in verse 20, that he indeed did, then the resurrection then becomes the most significant, most important event in all of human history. It's Jesus who indeed proves who he said he was, the great king and maker of the universe. And so then he is worthy of our worship and our faith and indeed all of our lives. You see, but the good news of Jesus' resurrection is not just a, a true reality, Paul claims. It's a transformational one that didn't just change the world 2,000 years ago, but one that changes us and our lives each and every day. We're going to be spending the next couple of weeks walking through the rest of chapter 15 where Paul goes on to highlight many of the profound implications that come in light of believing in the reality of Jesus' resurrection. But this morning what I want to do is just briefly highlight three things, three crucial transformational realities that are part of the resurrection. The first is simply this, because Jesus rose again, you can have confidence and assurance in the trustworthiness of everything else that he had to say. See, if Jesus kept his word to defeat death, if he could overcome death, then you can trust everything else that he said, that he indeed is God and that he indeed, indeed can forgive your sin and that he indeed has gone to prepare a place for us and that one day he is actually coming back. And in the meantime, that he has sent his spirit to empower you to live a life you could not live apart from his resurrection power in you. So that brings us to the second thing. See, because Jesus rose again, you and I have actually have power to live new lives today. One commentator, he sums it up this way. He says, if Jesus had just died for us, if, like we celebrated on Good Friday, if Jesus had just died in our place for our sins, that would be great. But then he says, but then we would just be forgiven corpses. But through the resurrection, he says, the very life of God has broken into this world to give us life that is not only eternal in duration, but is altogether new in character. Romans chapter 8, verse 11. For the, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of the spirit that lives in you. Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. Paul writes, I want to know Jesus. I want to know the power of his resurrection. You see, the reality is, is that without the resurrection, you and I have absolutely no hope of ever living the kinds of lives that Jesus calls us to live. You have no strength in your own. You have no power of your own to be what Jesus commands and calls you to be. And But with the resurrection, Jesus gives you new life and new power to be the new people that he calls and empowers and has saved you to become. And without him, there is no way to do it. But with him and with his resurrection, you have access to all of the power you could ever need to live a life that he calls us to live. 
More than that, Paul says it's not just that you have power to live a new life, but you have the motivation to do it. He says it's that Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, appeared even to him. Not when he had cleaned himself up, not when he had become all that Jesus wanted him to be, but while he was literally hunting down Christians to kill them. That's when Jesus intervened in his heart and life and revealed his character and nature to him. You see, and it's God's grace that Paul emphasizes that causes him to live a new life. And it's not just that he has power to live a new life, but he has a motivation to live a new life because he recognizes the immeasurable, immense grace of God that was shown to him. It wasn't his intellect. It wasn't his impressiveness. It wasn't his power or strength. It was, in fact, in spite of who he was that God saved him and gave him new life and new power to live. And so the gospel and the resurrection, it not only fuels our faith with power we don't have, it motivates us to live a life of worship unto Jesus. And lastly, we see this morning that because Jesus rose again, you and I can have a hope and a purpose that cannot be shaken. You see, Jesus defeated death, and so by faith in him, Paul is writing that you will as well. That you don't have to fear death any longer and you don't have to run from it because Jesus already overcame it. And so our hope isn't here in this world. It's in Jesus' resurrection which points us to a future day when he will indeed resurrect not only our physical bodies but all things. He will return all things to the way that they were always intended to be. And so the resurrection means our hope is not in something that is here and in now that can be taken away, but in something that is indeed eternal. Peter, in chapter 1 of his first letter to the church, in verse 3, he writes this. He says, Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for in his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead into an, an inheritance that can never perish and never spoil and cannot fade. This inheritance, he says, is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You see, Peter, he's writing these words to a church who is in the midst of all kinds of struggle and turmoil, in the midst of all kinds of doubt and difficult situations, And he reminds them that death does not have the last word. And that that sin does not have the last word. That suffering doesn't have the last word. And that pain does not have the last word. And nor injustice does not have the last word. But instead, it's Jesus who has the final word. It's his authority that has the final say. And our inheritance and our life and our hope are kept in heaven by him. And it cannot be taken away. And that reality, it not only frees us from the fear of death, but instead it frees us from the fear of slavery to living for ourselves. And to living for our own kingdom and our own purposes and our own gratifications. It frees us from slavery to materialism and a self-identity that we give ourselves and a sense of self-fulfillment. But more than that, it gives us a meaning and a purpose beyond which anything in this world can give. And so the resurrection, it frees us, but it also commissions us to live a new life, not for our own good, but for the good of the Lord and for everyone else. 
And so to live for his glory and his kingdom and his purposes instead of our own. And so instead of always being concerned about your own good and, and your own needs and, and all that will happen, you can trust that Jesus is able and promises to bring about your good, even in the midst of difficulty and even in the midst of sacrifice and even in the midst of hardship. And instead of hoarding our resources to ourselves, we get to give generously and sacrificially, knowing that we cannot outgive God what he has given us already. And our true inheritance, the thing that matters of most value, is kept in heaven for us by him. You see, the resurrection changes everything. Paul writes to this young church who is struggling full of doubt. And he says, I want to remind you. I need to remind you of what matters most. Of the thing which is of first and utmost importance. You see, without the resurrection, there is no life, there is no hope, there is no reason for us to gather. All but because Jesus has indeed been risen from the dead. It changes our lives and it calls us to, instead of living for ourselves, to submit to him joyfully and wholly, giving him every ounce of our lives and every second of our time so that he might be worshipped and glorified through us. You see, the resurrection, it changes everything. And because that is true, we get to sing to Jesus this morning because he is indeed alive. And we get to pray to him this morning because, and know that he actually hears your prayers and that he listens because he is not dead, he is actually alive. And not only that, he is the great king of the universe who has all of the power and authority and we indeed get to confess our sins to him and believe that he has the power to forgive us and enable us to live new lives because he's not dead. He is indeed alive. So if you are here this morning and you have not yet believed in Jesus and his resurrection, you have not yet put your trust in him, that he might be the one thing that makes you right with God and gives you an everlasting hope and life with him, then I hope as we have studied God's word this morning that you have seen compelling reasons for the reality of his resurrection and that you might be willing to give your heart and your life to him today and become a Christian. Ask him to forgive you of your sin and to empower you to live a new life that you cannot live apart from him. See, and here's the good news that Jesus says all who come to him, he will indeed receive. And his offer is extended to you again this morning. Some of you are here, though, and you're Christians, but you've been wavering in your faith. And I hope this morning that you have been encouraged. I hope this morning that you have been reminded that the resurrection is not something that just requires blind faith, but is indeed not only just a plausible reality, but the best explanation of all that we have. And I hope as well that as your faith is encouraged, as your confidence in the resurrection work of Jesus is assured, that you would come to love him more and that you would come to see the urgency of others knowing him as all that more important 
and that you would long to give your lives to the proclamation of his good news. So as, we, as you're ready this morning, those of you who are Christians or have become Christians this morning during our time of worship, I want to encourage you to take communion. Hopefully you grab some of the elements on your way in, but if you missed them, there's a table in the back on the left and on the right that you can grab the communion elements. Communion, it doesn't make us right with God and it doesn't change our status or our standing with him. Instead, it's an opportunity for us to remember all that he has done. To remember that he indeed died for our sins and that he rose again that we might have new life. What we're doing is remembering that reality so that we might be full of joy and full of loving motivation to give our lives back to him every day. And so as we sing this morning, let us worship a risen king, let us do it confidently and surely knowing that he indeed is alive and let us live resurrected lives unto him every day, empowered by the same Holy Spirit that raised him from the dead and let us as well set our hope on the one day that Jesus will return and resurrect all things, not only for our good, but for his great glory in this age and in every age which is to come. Let's pray. Jesus, we come before you this morning knowing that you indeed are not dead but alive. There is no empty tomb that we go to find because there is nothing there. You are the risen, ruling, reigning king of the universe. God, I pray for those who are here this morning. And they have doubts about your resurrection, that our time together this morning will have challenged those doubts and caused them to keep asking questions and to pursue an answer, knowing that there is a reality beyond which maybe they have recognized before. God, for those of us who are here and our faith is wavering, God, might the reality of your resurrection and the encouragement we have from it be good news that not only empowers our faith and motivates a life given to you, but brings us great assurance and hope in the midst of our doubts. Jesus, might we be a church, not only that just believes you have been raised from the dead, but who lives new lives empowered with your resurrection power so that our whole world might know that you are God, that you live, that you rule, that you reign, and that you long to save them as you have done for us. We pray these things in your good name. Amen.